Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together where friends can come, join around a table, and listen to our teaching for today. In thanksgiving and gratitude, we are glad that we can share this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Are there any housekeeping announcements? Good. If not, let us plunge ahead. What I wanted to do first is do a quick little review of uh, what we covered last week and what was the key metaphor of the prophets for the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. Who can tell me in one sentence or one word? Marriage, thank you. And we saw that in Jeremiah through those quotes. We looked at some things from Isaiah and Amos, but also especially Hosea. And so I don't think I need to go over any of what we covered in Hosea, have we? Do I? And we talked about the Yada relationship. That Yada in Genesis is more than simply uh, factual knowledge, it is intimacy. And that that is the kind of knowledge that uh, Yahweh has of Israel. And I wanted to go over maybe a little more some of the vocabulary, so I've included some more information on this. Erusin, remember what was Erusin? What took place in Erusin? Yes? Not just an announcement. What was going on in Erusin? They were legally married, but living apart. Legally married, but living apart. Legally married, but living apart. That essentially, it's the acquisition of a woman by a man, usually by monetary gift in the presence of witnesses. It is full marriage. Full marriage for all of the prohibitions. But the wife continues to live in the parental home. So at the time of Jesus, let me tell you how this would normally take place. Let us suppose that my son wanted to marry your daughter. Okay, what we would do is we would come to your house, and if, we, if the marriage was a good idea in the eyes of both families, we would have witnesses there. We would probably have someone there to represent the local bet din, the local court. And in the presence of witnesses, my son would give to your daughter a ring or something of monetary value and say, Hare at mikudeshet li, behold, you are consecrated to me, kedat Moshe the Yisrael, according to the religion of Moses and Israel. And from that point on, your daughter was legally married to my son, but she continued to live in your household. Now, we would probably have a nice festive meal together, but this isn't really the wedding celebration. That would take place later at the second ceremony, Nisuin, consummation. And what takes place at Nisuin? What? You, you shut him away in a room for long enough to, have, uh, to consummate the marriage. Okay. Again, witnesses would indicate, and the whole point is that at this point, now, if we had had the, the Erusin, now my son would come to your house to bring your daughter to his home. Okay. Now, and they would go into a room in the presence of, there would be only one entrance into this room, 
and in the presence of witnesses, the door would be shut on them, the witnesses on the outside, bride and groom on the inside, for long enough to consummate the marriage. Now, this would be followed by seven days of celebration. Seven days of celebration. Uh, in which, in each celebration, there would be seven blessings recited uh, over the bride and groom. And this was where the real feasting takes place, is after the consummation of the marriage. Okay, a few little things about that period of time. Uh, one of the things that I experienced in Israel when I was an Orthodox Jew is that there's a part of the morning prayer service that are penitential prayers called tachanun. I don't need you to remember that word, tachanun. They're recited with your head bowed onto your left arm, and your, your head is down, and you are, you know, basically asking God's mercy uh, for your sins. And on Mondays and Thursdays, they would be extra long. Why? Because at the time of the rabbis, Monday and Thursday were the market days. And Mondays and Thursdays were therefore also the days when portions of the Torah would be read in the local synagogue, in the local community center, okay? So that the people would be acquainted with the Torah with the law of Moses. It was also a custom of devout Jews on Monday and Thursday to fast. Okay, to fast. Now, uh, why do you suppose devout Jews would fast on market day? Well, probably the main reason was, ostensibly, is that you didn't want people going through the market and people saying, here, try this, here, try this. And you end up getting your entire day's meal just on the free samples. Okay? So if you were going to go to the market, you would have to buy it. And that way, the people who brought their produce to market would actually earn their, their money. Okay? Now, if there is a bridegroom present in the minyan, in the quorum for worship, uh, during those seven days of celebration, all of that goes by the wayside. You do not say the penitential prayers, and the Monday-Thursday fast is suspended because you cannot celebrate under those circumstances. Now, the important point, again, is that those two ceremonies were separated in the time of Jesus by as much as a year. So, during the period between Eirusin and Nisuin, the bride is living in her father's household. So, where was Mary living when she was discovered to be with child? She was living in the parental household. Joseph had not yet taken her home to be his wife. So what was the presumption? She had really committed a no-no. Okay. And so, but when Joseph did take her into himself as his wife, took her home, and then later the child was born then that was the legal acknowledgement that Jesus was his, whether or not he had genetically been the father or not. That's important to keep in mind. Okay. Any questions about this? Yeah. Uh, did the guy just walking down the street see a girl and say, ah, that's the woman for me, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, it's more than likely most marriages in those days were probably arranged between the families. So before the heiress in, there would have been some negotiation 
going on between the uh, different families. According to the sort of the church tradition, for example, Mary was very young. She had been dedicated at a young age by her parents, Joachim and Anna, to the service of God in the temple. Uh, Joseph was an older man who had been widowed, had children from his previous marriage, and was actually persuaded by the high priest to take Mary under his care as his arusa, as his betrothed. Uh, he was a little reluctant to do so because of the difference in age. Uh, that's the story that is told, at least, for example, in Orthodox and Catholic tradition. Yeah. How old was he? Uh, back in those days, you never asked a gentleman his age. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was wondering, like, how could she go live with him without having the celebration and the party and all that stuff? Because the celebration and the party took place when she was brought to his house. So they did have all the events that they would normally do. So for all intents and purposes, they believed that it was his kid because of that. Yeah, I mean, they would have had the full seven-day celebration after he brought Mary to his house. Now, it, it does not indicate how long it was between that event and when they were betrothed, when they had the Erusin. That we don't know. None of those details are given to us. Yeah? No, um, if she had the... well. If, it, if they had the Nisuin, she would already have had the baby if it was a year. Okay, I do have an escape clause in there. Separated by as much as a year. She would, well, Joseph found out she was pregnant. Exactly how pregnant she was. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, um, one of the things that we have to realize is that there was some question about Jesus' parentage mm -hmm. later on. So, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is she was, she was probably known to be pregnant. Joseph may have been acknowledging Jesus, but one of the interesting things is that Joseph disappears from the narrative of the Gospels after the infancy narratives. So the presumption is he may have died, especially if he was much older than Mary. So he wasn't around to defend Jesus. If you look at Mark's gospel, take a look for a moment. When Mark, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus comes back to his hometown of Nazareth, okay, This is in Mark chapter 6. Okay. Okay. Read verses 1 through 3. Okay, is not this the carpenter? Now, if you compare this with Matthew, Matthew says, is this not the carpenter's son? But here it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? No mention of his father's name. Okay, uh, some biblical scholars have pointed out that actually this amounts to a calculated insult. 
Isn't this Mary's little mom's heir? Isn't this Mary's little bastard? So there was some questioning about his parentage in his hometown. This is one of the issues that Jesus had to deal with from time to time in his ministry. Um, uh, those of you who are lucky enough to participate in our Bible study up at Congress Lake know that we covered this subject where when Jesus was having one of his confrontation with the Judean authorities and they said, are you, you know, we are not, they said, we are not the children of fornication. Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They were questioning his parentage, his questioning his origin. Um, but it's interesting, of course, in John's gospel, he never even talks about human parentage. It mentions his mother, but the only person he refers to as his father is whom? God, exactly. Okay. Yes? I have a question way back here, this monetary gift in the presence of witnesses. Yep. Is that the beginning of the dowry? Okay, no, that is the giving of the ring. Now, two things also have to be kept in mind about both Erusin and Nisuin. Before an Erusin takes place, the giving of the ring in the presence of witnesses, there's going to be some negotiation between these families. Because, for example, if my son wants to marry your daughter, what do you want to be assured of? That he can take care of her. That he can support her. That he can, you know, does he have a good living? Is he able to give a good bride price? And there probably would have been some transfer of funds between the families before the Erusin even took place. Okay? There would be sort of, you know, it's sort of like when you buy a piece of property in real estate and you have to put down some earnest money. In a very real way, that would be required. Now, what do you think would happen when my son then came to your house and wanted to take your daughter home to his house what were you likely to say about the monetary situation? That's not enough. She's worth more than that. You better come up with some more. The important point, and this will become clear when we look at the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, is that at this point, it's like the negotiations start all over again. How much of a bride price is the bridegroom willing to pay? Because now, what is it? It's the bridegroom that's coming. This is no longer a negotiation between my family and your family. It's between my son and your family. And so it's like it's starting all over again. And that can take a long time. Yeah? Quote, unquote, defect because she was pregnant. Uh, it would have been, yeah, well... She would have been considered, I guess, damaged goods. Well, yeah, well, that's, we don't know about that. We really just don't know. We don't have any information. However, yeah, under those circumstances, they probably would not have. Now, what's interesting is that there is a case in Deuteronomy. Let me see if I can find that. I love learning by distraction. Okay. Yeah, I'll probably be in chapter twenty two. Okay. All right, yeah, chapter 22, look at verse 28 and following. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, in other words, not a ruse to another man, and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, 
Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. No divorce allowed under any circumstances. But do you notice, what does he do? He has to pay a fine of 50 shekels to her father. Why? He's reduced her value. And therefore, he owes monetary compensation to her father. So yeah, uh, that would have affected Mary's status. Yeah. What? 50 shekels? I don't know, but you could redeem a slave for 30. Yes. Your son was going to, wanting to marry her daughter. He is Jewish, she is Presbyterian. What takes place between them? Nothing. The reason I asked, my husband was a Presbyterian minister for 60 years, and we were living in a community that was 52% Jewish. Mm -hmm. And they often had weddings of a Presbyterian and a Jewish person, which most, most of them ended up both going to the Presbyterian church. <laughs> so I wondered what had to do. You've got to realize in this day, mixed marriage was strictly forbidden. Okay, this was the big issue that had taken place during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in fact, this was one of the things that was a huge brouhaha in that community is Ezra came from Babylon and found out that all these Judeans living in Judah had married foreign women. Shock, shock, shock. And actually, with Nehemiah's assistance, they were forced to divorce them all. Strictly not allowed. Yeah. How would you divorce? I mean, they would be sent away. There'd be a court of law? Yeah. Uh, but in that case, it would just be the court of law would just declare the marriage had never been valid in the first place. They would basically declare it null and void from the beginning. However, during normal circumstances, if a man and a woman, Jewish man and a Jewish woman, want to get divorced, then he has to give her what is called a get, a bill of divorce. Okay, but he has to give her the get, and uh, there is, you know, although there are certain circumstances in which he is obligated to do so, about the only way that he can be forced by the court to divorce her wife if the court determines she's entitled to it is that they can flog him until he says, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. I've been hearing the Christmas story for at least 85 years. I never heard that Joseph had a previous marriage. Yes, you won't hear that in the, uh, from the Bible. It's tradition. Okay. Okay. Because we don't know. We really just don't know. All right, we need to move on. Last week's takeaway, who can tell me what last week's takeaway is? What I asked you to take away from last week's session, who is the bridegroom? God. God, thank you. And who is the bride? Israel. Israel. In other words, God and the people of God are the bridegroom and the bride. That is all critical for everything we are going to be doing this week because now we're going to really get into the meat. Okay? Jesus is the bridegroom. Okay, please turn in your Bibles... To Matthew 9, 14 to 15. Matthew 9, 14 to 15. Okay? Would someone like to read this passage for us? 
your disciples do not. Jesus okay, could you start over again? Sure. With the microphone. Then Jesus' disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Okay. All right, what's the question about? Jesus is approached. How is it by some disciples of John the Baptist? How is it that our disciples, that we and the disciples of the Pharisees fast often? Your disciples aren't fasting. What fast do you suppose they were not observing? The Monday-Thursday fast. They weren't observing the Monday-Thursday fast. Okay, what is Jesus' reply? The bridegroom is there. How can they fast when the bridegroom is present? So, who is the bridegroom? Jesus. Now, think about that in the context of everything we have learned before. What is Jesus claiming, or who is Jesus claiming to be here? This is a claim to divinity. This has got to be shocking to the people who are hearing this. Okay? Because who is the bridegroom? The bridegroom is God. The God of Israel. Okay? You'll find the parallels to this in Mark 2, 18 to 20, and Luke 5, 33 to 35. Now, one of the things I wanted to point out about this is the kind of offhand manner in which Jesus essentially calls himself the bridegroom. It's very similar to a passage. How many of you remember the story when someone comes and tells Jesus, Herod is searching for you. You better get out of town. And he says what? Go and tell that fox that I go my way today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. But it is not fitting that a prophet should die anywhere other than in Jerusalem. Do you see how he just puts the word prophet in there in the way of explaining what's coming to him? That is a pretty clear, explicit assumption on his part. It's not just that he's claiming to be a prophet. He's just assuming it's a given fact. Well, in the same way, when he says, how can the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? It's as if it's an, an assumed fact that he's the bridegroom. That's the boldness of the claim. You kind of miss that if you don't keep those little sort of contextual and linguistic things in mind. Yes. Right. When they, fast. when they wouldn't fast. But what is he saying is going to happen? The bridegroom will be taken away, then they will. When was the bridegroom taken away from them? At the cross, after the cross and resurrection and the ascension, okay? Then they'll fast. Not using that term. So, but the word you use is a legalist word. Jewish word to mean I mean, it would have been hatan. And that's what they said. The bridegroom. And that's mm -hmm. what you said. Yeah. Okay. All right. And the Greek is very clear that he said bridegroom, not shepherd. Is he's claiming to be the bridegroom. Now, what I want to do is compare this with the witness of John the Baptist. Look first at John 3, 25 to 30. John 3, 25 to 30. Who would like to read? And please wait for the microphone.
Now a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and a Jew. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified here, is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, no one can receive anything except what has been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay. What is John bearing witness to here? Okay, that was, he's referring first of all to his previous witness. So let's get the previous witness. John 1, 29 to 34. John 1, 29 to 34. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this I came baptizing in the water, and he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend as, above, uh, as a dove from heaven, and I, it remained on him. Any more? Go ahead. Uh, I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay. So what is he bearing witness to at this point? What does he call Jesus at this point? The what? The Son of God? But before that, what was the first title that he used? The Lamb of God. So, he had borne witness to the priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem. The first thing he said when they asked, who are you? I am not the Christ. Now he's saying when he first sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. What does the Lamb of God do? Takes away the sin of the world. How does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? By sacrifice by sacrifice of himself. What else does he say about Jesus? This is the Son of God. And now, in John 3, what is he saying about Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. When I hear the bridegroom's voice, I am really rejoice at that. My joy is now complete because I know this marriage will take place between the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Who is the bride? Israel, the people of God. Okay? That's where we are. Okay? Any questions at this point? The key thing to keep in mind is that this now becomes the context for what we will look at next week when we look in the book of Revelation. Because one of the things we're going to look at in the book of Revelation is a special invitation that's issued to certain people for what? To attend the marriage feast of the Lamb. Oh! <laughs> so, this is where a lot of this is going to come together. Just want to whet your appetite. So, John's words were really expected by the Jewish people. 
Well, John's words would have been understood by the Jews there, and probably with great excitement. Okay, they would have been understood that this was an explicit witness that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but the Son of God. Yeah, well, they might not have been expecting the Son of God in quite the sense in which we understand that. Keep that in mind. The idea of a divine incarnation in Judaism was not really understood at that time. The next, the big surprise to me there was that the Holy Spirit came down as a dove and land. I would have assumed that Christ already had the Holy Spirit. Yes and yes. Okay. Yes, he had the Holy, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But when did the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove? At his baptism. Why was the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism? Because from that point on, it was empowering him for ministry. Now, John always says when he teaches this, the one thing Jesus had in his back pocket was the Godhead card. Okay? He had that Godhead card. You know, he was the Son of God. He was the second person of the Trinity. He could have pulled that out at any time. He never did. Why? He wanted to, he had to fulfill his ministry as a human being. And therefore, to fulfill his ministry as a human being and do so perfectly, what did he have to rely upon? The Holy Spirit working on him and in him and through him. But the important thing to keep away for, to, to take away from this experience with witness of John in chapter one is, I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him and what? It remained on him. It remained on him. Up until this point in the whole history of Israel, the descent or the coming of the Holy Spirit upon a person was usually episodic. It came upon them or rushed upon that person to empower them for a particular task, a particular ministry, but it didn't necessarily remain. What happened? The Holy Spirit came upon Saul when he was chosen to be king. What happened when he didn't measure up? God took the Spirit away. When David sins with Bathsheba, what does he pray to God in Psalm 51? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Don't do to me what you did to Saul, please. Yeah. Does the Holy Spirit descend on us uh, when we uh, have to do a certain task for God in this day? When do you receive the Holy Spirit as a Christian? Some would say at baptism, but what especially when you receive Christ as your Savior and Lord? Is it ever taken away from you? No. Where does the Spirit come to dwell? In you, not on you, in you. So you have the Holy Spirit. I love what one uh, Anglican bishop at a renewal conference, he was a rather charismatic you know, uh, person, but he said, help me prayers are really a waste of breath. They're essentially a way of saying to God, I don't really, I'm not really going to do this. I'm going to wait for you to do it for me. But God says, I've already helped you. I've given you everything you need for this task. I've given you my spirit. What more do you need? Yeah. refer my question what I really meant I knew that God was that the Holy Spirit was in me uh, when things when we do some spectacular things for Christ for the for God to then is there an extra jolt of Holy Spirit well let me put it this way you can get out of the way and the Holy Spirit can work in a way that's more discernible but, you, you know, it's like the kind of thing that happens when somebody does some kind of heroic act 
like runs into a burning building to save a child, what are they likely to say when they're questioned about it? I never knew I had it in me. Okay. Well, you've got it in you. You just might not know it. You've got it in you. It's there in all its fullness. You cannot receive part of a person of the Trinity. You can't divide the person, a person of the Trinity. You've got the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, living in you. What more do you need? For crying out loud, we disable ourselves because we don't believe that. We somehow sit here waiting, saying, God, I just don't think I'm capable of doing that. You're going to have to help me out on this. The great inferiority complex that afflicts Christians. You've got it in you. You may not realize it, but you've got it in you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, John was not baptizing Gentiles. Okay, and here, here's a very interesting thing. What kind of baptism was John practicing? Let's go right to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Okay. Okay, I heard somebody use a specific word that I want to get out of here. Thank you, Cindy. You're always on target as usual. When was Moses born? Yes, I know you know the answer to that. That's all right, Cindy. I'm just plugging your knowledge. Okay. Look at John, I mean Mark, chapter 1, verse 4. And John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, part of the problem is our, uh, the use of the word repentance there doesn't really quite convey exactly what he was doing. The fact of the matter is that baptism as a ceremony, as a rite, was well known to the Jewish people. And there were two reasons why you would baptize a person. The first reason was if they had become ritually impure and needed purification in order to either eat sacred foods or go into the temple. Okay? But there was another thing for which baptism was administered to a person to convert them to Judaism. If a Gentile wanted to become an Israelite, they had to go through a period of probation, instruction, etc. Then if they were a male, they would be circumcised. And whether male or female, they would then be immersed in a ritual bath, a mikvah, and at that point, they would emerge from the waters an Israelite for all purposes. Is, is, Zeb, is that bitfa, bitfa, is that in those little uh, cistern-like things that they got down in to, yeah. to be purified? Yeah, it's like a little cistern-like thing. However, lots of things can be used as a mikvah, including a river that is fed by rain and spring water, like the Jordan. So what kind of baptism was Jesus administering? Was it for purification? It was a baptism of conversion. But who was he giving it to? He was giving it to Israelites. He was... Jesus, did you John? John, yeah, I meant John, okay. In other words, John was saying to these Israelites, it is as if you had ceased to be Israelites. You had become Gentiles. You have become pagans. You have to start over. That was pretty radical. 
That was pretty radical. No wonder John was at first really surprised and shocked when Jesus says and comes up to him and asks for baptism. I'm the one who should be baptized by you. Okay, yeah. Uh, John the Baptist, to me, John the Baptist doesn't have a whole lot of information about uh, Christ and the, and the new, unless I'm missing it. It's just, he has a message, repent, and uh, what's the last, last part of it? Anyway, uh, accept God. Uh, he doesn't seem to have more much. Uh, now, obviously, he would know the Torah because he was a good Jew. Uh, okay. So he doesn't seem to know much about the coming uh, kingdom. Am Wait I wrong about that? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay, I'm looking for where where John help me where uh, the me- the people come from John the Baptist are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's I, I I know it's in the synoptics though. No, I want um, where people come and John, and, and he tells them, go and tell John what you see. Okay, that's what I thought. Thank you. Okay. Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now why would John the Baptist be asking that question? Anybody? What kind of Messiah was John expecting? The victorious king, the apocalyptic son of man. The one, and what was, was Jesus doing that at the time? Mm-mm. Actually, it's interesting. A friend of mine and I came up for different scripture quotes for when a parish is looking for a clergy. During the search process, the question they ask is, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? During the first year of the clergy's presence, they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. During the second year, they say, by what authority do you do these things? And then finally, in the third year, it's crucify him, crucify him. Okay. But look at what Jesus' reply is, okay? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, he's saying, if you look carefully enough, yes, I'm doing all the right things. And then, when they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That's a quote from Malachi. 
Who is Malachi referring to? No. Elijah. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, not only is he a prophet, when someone asks you, who is the greatest prophet under the Old Covenant, what's the correct answer? It's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist. This is not merely a prophet. This is the greatest prophet that has arisen in Israel, but yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, he's not only the greatest of the prophets under the old covenant, but he's the last. Because now who comes along and is the greatest prophet that has ever been? Jesus, exactly. But you're saying, John didn't seem to know much about the kingdom of God. Oh, he knew plenty. He was there in the spirit of Elijah. He knew plenty about the kingdom of God. Well, yeah, he did talk about it. Repent and be baptized. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, any further questions? We're beginning to run low on time. I wanted to get at least to one more event in the life of Jesus, and that's the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And that's John 2, 1 through 11. Who would like, well, I, I think in the interest of time, I'll just read this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Interesting story, a lot of details. I love what one person says. He says, woman, what is this to do with you, with me? My hour has not yet come. And like a typical Jewish mother, she ignores him. <laughs> a few things that are interesting, though. Those words, do whatever he tells you, those are the last words Mary ever speaks in the Gospels. So who are they addressed to? They're addressed to everybody. Do whatever he tells you. That's her witness. Okay. Now, just a little detail. I don't want to spend any time on this. But if you look at Genesis 1, 8 through 13, there will explain a little bit about why it starts on the third day. Why the third day? If you look at Genesis 8, 1, 8 through 13, it describes the third day of creation. Something happens on the third day that is different from the other days. Because on every other day, this is said once. The previous day, it's not said at all. But on this day, it is said twice. And what is that saying? And God saw 
that it was good. On the third day, and God saw that it was good, uh, was said twice. That's why to this very day, if you are in Israel, the favorite day to hold a Jewish wedding is on the third day of the week. That's the prime day to hold a wedding. Yeah, Monday night and Tuesday. Weddings are held after dark, out of doors, so it would have been on Monday night. So in other words, what we have here is a typical wedding on the third day of the week. Okay? Just, just a little detail. Uh, by the way, what part of a Jewish wedding are we having here? If we have a banquet. Nisuin, consummation. Okay? Now, what's interesting here is who's the bridegroom here? It was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was invited, and Jesus was there with his disciples. So who's the bridegroom? It's not Jesus. Then why is the bridegroom anonymous? Because this is a sign. This is going to be a sign. Okay? It is a type. It is looking forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is not the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is not Jesus' wedding. This is now becoming a type. It is saying, in effect, that every wedding is a type of the wedding that is coming. It was taking place at what is known in Hebrew as a Beit HaMishteh, literally a house of drinking. This is where, if especially your own house wasn't big enough to have a whole lot of guests, what do you do today for a wedding reception? You hire a hall. They had them back in those days, too. It was called a Beit HaMishteh, and the idea is you would have seven days of feasting with a lot of wine. And Jesus produced a lot of wine there. And I don't want to get into too many details, because I remember I talked... I think it was last year, I don't know if it was here, but if you calculate the total content of, in capacity of the six stone water jars, what it amounts to is the total capacity of one ritual bath, one mikvah. So what those six stone water jars standing in the courtyard were was a rain catchment system to collect rainwater for the mikvah because there were two types of, of fluid that you could not use in a kosher mikvah. One was drawn water, which he had the servants draw and fill those things up. The other was wine. So we're fooling with the ritual process here. But you would have a mikvah there because before the bride could cohabit with the bridegroom, she had to immerse in a mikvah. It was a process of ritual purification. So what does the bride need before she comes together with the bridegroom for that yada relationship? She needs purification. So it's a place for seven blessings, celebrations, and the presence of a mikvah. Okay? Now, here comes the punchline. What is the significance of Jesus performing his first sign at a wedding? Ex what? But why at a wedding? It's a foreshadowing of his wedding to the church, of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay, you got a question? Was Mary ever pure? Was Mary ever um, baptized? 
she would have gone to the mikvah before Joseph took her into his house. Okay? Even though she was pregnant. What is the meaning of manifested his glory? In the Gospel of John, what does it say when Jesus manifested his glory? What is the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John? Where do we find it? Come on, people. Basic stuff. It's his crucifixion. So Jesus was manifesting the glory of his crucifixion. Now, this is the key question. And this is what I want you to take away. What was Jesus' erusin? When did Jesus acquire his bride? When did he pay the bride price? His death on the cross, thank you. The death on the cross was Jesus' erusin. However, what will be Jesus' nisuin? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're in between the erusin and the nisuin. We're in between the Erusin and the Nisuin of Jesus. But that's why, and when he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come, that means the hour for the crucifixion. How can I do the Nisuin before I've even done the Erusin? But she says, like a typical Jewish mother, ignores him and says, do whatever he tells you. Okay? That's the takeaway for today. That is the takeaway for the day. Okay. When is Jesus' erusin? Death on the cross. When is Jesus' nisuin? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Any final questions? Because we've already run over time. How did Mary know that he would do that? Well, he was already grown up. They'd spent a fair amount of time together. And as for how did he know, how, how did uh, she know that he would do what she said, even if he said he wouldn't do it? Because she knew he was his mother. Jewish mothers have known that for years. You know how many Jewish mothers it takes to change a light bulb? None, I'll just sit here in the dark. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes? No, actually, that's not a Jewish tradition. That's not a Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition is that Mary had cheated. The Jewish tradition is that actually, that, that, and you find this in some uh, unexpurgated versions of the Talmud, there was a later legend that was circulated that um, Mary had, had a child with a Roman soldier named Panthera. Let me just jump in here for a second, sir. Uh, the reason that that tradition grew among the Catholics and the Orthodox is because a tradition about Mary's perpetual virginity was thought to be important to them. So uh, the idea that Joseph had a family beforehand with children explains that text that Zev read earlier, that is this not the carpenter? Aren't these his brothers and sisters here among us? Well, if that's true, then that would mean that Joseph and Mary eventually did consummate and produce children. However, since the Catholics and the Orthodox came to the conclusion that Mary assumed a state of perpetual virginity, that would be impossible. So therefore, they had to come up with a story that said Joseph was married prior and had children 
prior, and that he and Mary lived a life of total celibacy for the rest of their lives. Does that make sense? This is like a 1,700-year-old tradition, and you just haven't hung out, uh, hung out with enough Catholics yet. But that's, that's, and that's not a problem. I'm just telling you. That's why it is. Does it make sense? No, I said that's by tradition. That no, is. he's not citing it as true. He's just saying that's the traditional view of Catholics and Orthodox. That's their perspective. In other words, if you choose to believe it, fine. And there's nothing unbiblical about believing it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's a very sacred idea. Okay. Any other 